In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Good morning, dear listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Mubarak Amini, and you are listening to the breakfast show live from our studios here in the Batfatu Mosque. Today is Tuesday, the third of January, two thousand and twenty-three, and the time is seven o nine a.m. Today, by the grace of um, by the grace of Allah, we have uh, three segments. Um, the first segment is cigarette secession. Can the New Zealanders uh, New Zealanders carry it through without consequence? Segment number two is miscarriage. Is it swayed by one's emotional state? And segment number three, education on anti-Semitism ought to be included in UK's curriculum stresses government advisor dear listeners do feel uh, free to share your views and options uh, call call us in on 020-8687-7878 or tweet us at voice of islam uk but before we go ahead today let's just take a look at what the news and 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 what the weather says so in regards to the the weather Today, uh, a band of rain will uh, sweep across the UK, falling as hail snow to start in in Scotland. Cloudy and breezy in the afternoon, with heavy spells of rain mainly in the west, brighter in the far north. Tonight, we'll quickly see another band of heavy rain sweep across the UK, leaving sharp showers behind. These mainly in the west and a mix of a few clear spells and areas of cloud in places. Wednesday we are looking at um, windy but, but, but drier with uh, a few scattered blustery showers in northern, western and some inland regions. Bright spells will develop in places mainly in southeast England and central Scotland. And the outlook for Thursday to Saturday is that Thursday will will, will be rather cloudy. <clears throat> uh, Thursday will be rather cloudy for most, uh, with a few scattered showers still around. Another band of rain is is expected to reach the UK in the afternoon. Winds will ease overnight into Friday, which will be drier with bright spells, but rain will reach western areas by the late evening. Saturday will be unsettled and windy for all as another band of rain will sweep across the UK. So, dear listeners, we are going to be experiencing um, a lot of uh, rain in the next uh, next week, so make sure everyone is uh, prepared and, and, and ready for, for the rain. Make sure you've got your raincoats, make sure you've got your umbrellas if you're, um, you're going to be out walking, uh, travelling by, by uh, public transport. Moving ahead with um, the the newspaper headlines, um, some of Tuesday's papers lead with the Duke of uh, Sussex saying he wants his father and brother back. The Telegraph reports that in two TV trailers released ahead of his upcoming memoir, Prince Harry accused the royal family of betrayal and being happy for the for for, for the himself and Meghan to be seen as villains. Prince Harry has accused the royal family of showing absolutely no willingness to reconcile with him and his wife, the Daily Mail reports. However, 
The Duke said he would like to rebuild his relationship with King Charles and the Prince of Wales, the paper notes. The Express reports sources as saying the short TV clips released on Monday hint the Duke is holding King Charles, the late Queen and Prince William responsible for the bitter rift. Prince Harry's comments have come weeks after his attacks on the royal family in his Netflix series. The Sun says Prince Harry slated his, his family again in, in, in two new TV interviews he conducted to promote his book. Spare, the, the Duke has accused his family for being unwilling to fix the rift. Meanwhile, the future of the NHS is on a knife edge, according to the chair of the British Medical Association, reports the Mirror. The paper says professional Phil Banfield has called on Number 10 to save the health service as it buckles under soaring demand and years of cuts. Pine Dining declares the star. Top chefs have said people should not eat their Christmas trees as part of a health kick, the paper notes. Now, several of Tuesday's newspapers um, lead on quotes from Harry, from, from, from Prince Harry, saying he wants his father and and brother back. The Daily Telegraph says trailers for two upcoming interviews include claims that the King and the Prince of William, uh, the, the 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 Prince of Wales, are unwilling to reconcile with him, and are happy for Harry and his wife to be seen as villains. The Daily Mail says Prince Harry has risked deepening his feud with the royal family by launching a, pl- a publicity blitz to promote his Mimeos Bear. The paper says the tell-all tell book is due to be released next week after the full interviews are broadcast on ITV and the US network, CBS. The Sun's take is that the prince has slated his family again and then said he wants to make peace with them. Furthermore, the future of the NHS is on a knife edge is the headline in the Daily Mirror. It highlights the call from the British Medical Association for immediate state intervention. Professor Phil Banfield tells the paper it's within the government's gift to pull the health service back from what he calls the brink. The Mirror claims pressure is growing on Number 10 to call a nationwide critical incident similar to the height of the pandemic when non-urgent cases were cancelled. The the Department of Health says it recognises the pressures the NHS is facing and has provided £14.1 billion of additional funding. Both the Guardian and the the I led with, with warnings from health leaders that the NHS faces three more months of turmoil, with further critical incidents expected and patients' care routinely compromised. Economists are, pre- uh, are predicting that the UK will have a longer and deeper recession than other wealthy nations in the G7, according to the Financial Times. The paper has surveyed more than 100 UK-based experts, with a clear majority expecting high interest rates and tight government spending controls to continue for longer than, en- than elsewhere. One economist tells the Financial Times that the 2023 recession will feel much worse than the economic impact on of the pandemic but most said growth would return by the end of the year the times reports that unseasonably warm weather has led to the closure of some alpine ski resorts it says low altitude centers in france and switzerland are the worst affected 
although the situation is better in Austria and Italy. The paper says many bosses are holding crisis meetings to see if resorts can remain open. Its headline sums up the story as ski holiday hopes going downhill. Um, furthermore, dear listeners, you know, um, we're, still, we're still living with the COVID pandemic. It still hasn't ended, unfortunately. Yes, um, I mean, we don't see that many cases in front of us or a lot of people are, are not experiencing um, COVID anymore in the, in the same way. Um, but it's still there and it is getting worse. And um, uh, the, the, the England, England has, has said that they will need to require negative tests for arrivals from China as well. So <clears throat> if you're traveling as well, um, do remember to keep your masks on. Do remember to look after for, uh, your yourself. Look after the people around you. Look after the your your loved ones, and um, and and take that extra care because it really makes a difference. Uh, the Times Square teenager charged over New York um, machete attack. Police have charged a a 19 year old with two counts of attempted murder over an attack on three police officers near Times Square on New Year's Eve. It's quite sad um, seeing our um, our youth um, going down this path. You know, um, there there are obviously reasons behind it. There are always, um, um, I mean, if it's not blamed on on extremist Islamists, then it might be um, it might be some other reason that he's he's gone and done something but we should always pray for those people and if if there are people out there that are having some issues and need help then please do contact your your local um, community centers and and get help train strikes people returning to work face more uh, more strikes uh, people returning to work this week after the christmas break are being urged to avoid traveling by rail because of strikes the walkouts by rmt members on 3, 4 and 6, 7th January and by Aslev drivers on 5 January will significantly impact services, said the rail network. RMT union members have rejected officers in a dispute over pay job, security and working conditions. Train drivers at 15 rail companies in the Aslev union are striking over pay. Network Rail, which maintains the rail signals and stations, said the combination of strikes will result in only about 20% of services running, with many areas not seeing any trains at all. Services across England, Scotland and Wales could be affected by the strikes. We're sorry to have to once again ask passengers to avoid using the railway this week, a spokesperson from, Nail, from, from, National, from, from Network Rail said. The Rail Devel uh, D Delivery Group RDG, which represents the train operating companies, also urge people only to travel if absolutely necessary. Trains that do run will start later and finish much earlier than usual, with services typically running between 7.30am and 6.30pm on the days of the strike. There also may be some, some, some knock-on dis uh, disruption to services on 8th of January. Passengers are being advised to allow extra time for their journeys and to check before they travel. 
It is the latest in a series of strikes across the rail network which have caused major disruption. The two 48-hour walkouts on Tuesday and Friday involve around 40,000 RMT members on network rail and 14 train operators. The RMT's General Secretary Mick Lynch insisted that his members wanted a settlement, not further disruption. There's been too much disruption on the railway caused by government policy and if we can get sensible proposals, we can work up towards a solution. He accused government ministers of sitting on their hands and, and failing to help secure a deal. They keep saying they're, 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 they're facilitating a deal and I think it's absolutely the opposite to that. However, a Department for Transport spokesperson rejected this, saying the government has demonstrated it being reasonable and stands ready to facilitate a resolution to rail disputes. It's time the unions came to the table and played their part as well. Meanwhile, Network Rail say, said the deal it has put forward to the RMT is fair and reasonable and urged the union to sit down with us and revisit it. So, um, dear listeners, if you guys uh, do use the public transport, use the trains, um, you know, before you get out there, before you're um, making your journeys, do check um, your the timings of your of your trains and of your uh, transport services, uh, so that you don't get late to work and and whatever disruption there is, if you can avoid it, then um, that would be. The, the the best for for all of you. For now, we will take a a a quick break and then we'll we'll come back and join. Um, and we'll, we'll come back and we'll start with the with the, with the first segment. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Alaihissalam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Quran is a rare pearl. Its outside is light, and its inside is light, and its above is light, and its below is light. And there is light in every word of it. It is a spiritual garden, whose clustered fruits are within easy reach, and through which streams flow. Every fruit of good fortune is found in it, and every torch is lit from it. Its light has penetrated to my heart, and I could not have acquired it by any other means. And Allah is my witness that if there had been no Qur'an, I would have found no delight in life. I find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand Josephs. I incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart. It has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured, and it has a wonderful effect on my heart. Myself is lost in its beauty. It has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the Holy Qur'an, which is a surging ocean of the water of life. He who drinks from it comes to life. Indeed, he brings others to life. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community in Islam. Thy boundless blessings and peace be upon Mustafa, O Lord. Verily, 
through him we receive thy light. My soul is eternally bonded to the soul of Muhammad. I made my heart drink deep of the brimful cup of this love. None better than he could I discover in the whole world. Most certainly, I have broken my heart loose from the grip of others. God's glory is reflected in your virtues, my beloved. Him I made my own by having made you mine. Having touched the hem of thy garment, O God, one is saved from being entrapped by the charms of others. Verily, I bow my head at your threshold alone. O my beloved, I swear by thy unity, in my love of thee, I have become oblivious of my own self. By God, all other images have vanished from my heart ever since I had your countenance etched upon it. It was because of you that we became the best of all the peoples. O prophet of God, who is the best of all the prophets, as you marched ahead of all the rest, we too stepped forward. Let alone the human beings, even all the angels in the heavens follow suit and join me as I sing thy praise. The promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, Islam expounds the most excellent doctrine that in the interim period after death, every soul is vested with a sort of body which is essential for perception of pleasure and torment. We cannot accurately describe as to what substance that body is made of. As far as this mortal body is concerned, however, it ceases to exist. Moreover, it is never observed by anyone that the same corporal body is revived in the grave. On the contrary, this body is often cremated and many a time corpses are also preserved in museums or kept otherwise out of the grave for long periods. If it were the same body which were to be revived, it was very likely that people would have observed this happening. Nonetheless, the revival of the dead is very much evident from the study of the Holy Quran. Hence one is compelled to believe that the dead are revived in such forms as we cannot see. Most likely, that spiritual body is composed of some highly refined constituents of this material body. The soul having been thus provided with the body, human perceptions are reinstated. Because this new body is far more rarefied and ethereal in nature, a much wider avenue of visions and revelation is laid open to it. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. Every light that is seen be it high or low, whether it belongs to souls or pertains to bodies, or be it substantive or attributive, whether hidden or evident, be it subjective or objective, it is a mere bounty of His grace. This is a sign which indicates that the bounties of Allah encompass everything. He is the source of all grace and is the ultimate cause of every light, the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all, high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. 
no being other than he exists by itself or is eternal. All other beings are recipients of his grace, earth and heaven, man and beast, stones and trees, souls and bodies. All are sustained by his grace. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Welcome back, dear listeners, to the breakfast show. So, set, starting off with our first segment for today, which is New Zealand's new cigarette law is fighting the wrong war. Now, the, um, the main gist of this story is that New Zealand has made uh, a sort of New Year's resolution. It is the first to pass a, a legislation banning smoking for the next generation. This means that anyone born post-2008 will never legally be able to gain access to tobacco cigarettes. But, it, it, but, but will it successfully prevent potential future addicts? Dear listeners, um, do, do remember that you can, you can call in to share your views and your opinions on 0208-687-7878 or give us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. So let's look at some some uh, impacts of smoking. About only 8% of New Zealanders are smokers. However, it is more concentrated in in certain in, in indigenous populations. 22.3% of Maori adults and 17% of Pacific adults. Cigarette smoking harms nearly every organ of the body kindles many diseases and reduces the health of smokers in general. Cigarette smoking Cigarette, cigarette uh, smoking harms nearly every organ of the body, kindles many diseases and reduces the health of smokers in, 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 in general. Smoking causes about 90% of all lung cancer deaths more women die from lung cancer each year than from breast cancer. It causes about 80% of deaths from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It, exas- it, um, it, 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 it exasperates already low life expectancies from other causes in both males and females. Smoking causes more deaths annually, from the fol- uh, annually than the following combined. HIV, illegal drug use, alcohol use, motor vehicle injuries, and firearm-related incidents. This um, this New Zealand's um, new uh, legislation, um, which is the smoke-free environments and and regulated products, um, Smoke Tobacco Amendment Act 2022. There are there are uh, three key key policies in the 2022 amendment, which was passed on December the 13th. The first one is significantly limit the the number of retailers able to sell smoked tobacco products to a maximum of 600 across the country of five million. Number two, prohibit the sale of smoked tobacco products to anyone born on or after 1st of January 2009, essentially uh, alleviating the the, the legal smoking age year after year, phasing out 
out smoking to create a smoke-free generation. Make smoked tobacco products. Number three is make smoked tobacco products less appealing and addictive via regulation of ingredients, such as decreasing their nicotine content. Uh, dear listeners, I am uh, glad to say that we have our first guest for today. Um, our first guest is Clive Bates. Now, uh, Clive Bates is a graduate of, of Cambridge University and has a varied career in IT, energy, sustainability and public health roles. He became interested in, in tobacco policy and between 1997 and 2003, he was, director, he was director of Action on Smoking and Health in the UK, where he championed policies to reduce death and disease caused by smoking. Now he is a consultant in sustainability and public health. Good morning, Clive Bates. Uh, welcome to the Voice of Islam radio. Good morning. Glad uh, to be on. <coughs> brilliant. It's nice to have you too. Um, let's jump right into it then, Clive. Um, a unique aspect of this of this uh, New Zealand law is the age restriction on the ban. How effective do you think this will be? And do you believe it will prove more effective in, in comparison to banning cigarettes for all? Well, I'm quite sceptical about this measure, to be honest. Uh, in, in, in the specific case of New Zealand... Um, Teenage uh, smoking has dropped to a very low level already. Uh, in, in a sense, vaping has replaced smoking for the youngest people. Mm. So the, the problem that this measure is designed to address uh, doesn't really exist anymore at any scale. Uh, but, but of course, there's always been age restrictions on cigarette smoking in New Zealand and in most countries. And... Uh, teenagers find a way around them. Hmm. Uh, they get older people to buy, they uh, find uh, black market suppliers and so on. Hmm. And that would happen uh, with this measure. If the kids are determined to use these products, they will. Uh, so age restrictions, they probably slightly dampen down the effect, uh, but not that much and not at all with the most determined young smokers. And I think the problem is that this will consume quite a lot of political capital, but won't really achieve very much. Um, and it also has the effect of infantilizing adults. You know, at some point you're going to be asked uh, when you're, you know, 29 or something to prove that you're not 27. Um, and that, I think, is a, a pretty unusual and weird thing to do with age restrictions. So I don't see much point to it from a public health point of view. It will be politically costly to do it. Uh, and it has weird effects in the way you know, society respects the autonomy of adults. So I don't think it's a great idea. I don't think banning cigarettes is a good idea either. Um, the danger with that is that you just end up with a black market. People will switch to products that are not banned. They'll find ways around them and so on. The best way, I think, is to replace the demand for nicotine with products that are much less harmful than cigarettes. And that's where things like vaping come in. So, so sorry, uh, vaping is, you're saying, less, less harmful than smoking then? Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, although there's a lot of confusion in the media, um, we would expect uh, vaping products to be around 95% less harmful than cigarettes. I mean, the basic physics and chemistry is completely different. Most of the harm co caused by smoking is caused by the smoke itself, not by nicotine. Right. 
And these are burning particles of, uh, you know, tar and the hot toxic gases that come from burning tobacco at 900 degrees centigrade. None of that happens with vaping products. The, the, essentially, the nicotine is delivered um, using a fine mist or aerosol of liquids that have been heated electronically uh, rather than through combustion processes. And there are therefore no products of combustion. And it's those that do most of the damage. So we can be pretty confident that these products are far, far less risky than cigarettes. Right, okay. That's, that's, that's uh, interesting as well. Um, Clive, would you kindly explain the the denicotinization uh, measure in the in the legislation? Um, yeah, this is this is what this is probably the most controversial aspect of the New Zealand legislation. And the idea here is to remove nicotine from cigarettes or reduce it down to a very low level, um, below 0.8 milligrams per gram of tobacco, and that that's a reduction of around. 20 times what you would normally find in cigarettes. So, so it's reducing to a very, very low level. Um, the problem here is that if, if people use those cigarettes, they wouldn't use them for very long because people smoke for nicotine. Nicotine is the drug in tobacco that people want to use. It's the thing that gives it the buzz and the effect that people are looking for. So nobody will really use those cigarettes. The question is, what will they do instead? Um, and there's a variety of ways that people can respond to a measure like that. The first thing that they could do is they could uh, switch to, say, vaping, or they might even quit completely. Um, so there'll be a range of responses. But the danger is that what they'll do is shift to other combustible tobacco products, yeah. or they will shift to the black market, which will form to meet the need. Now, you know, that's not a happy thing to happen. Uh, a black market, um, you say, well, OK, they were smoking before and now they're smoking. They're still smoking. But the problem is all the criminality yeah. that comes in with that. And we, we've seen, you know, the effects of uh, criminal networks in um, the provision of illicit drugs. It's yeah. never a good thing for a community or a society to have large criminal networks form. Yeah. Um, and New Zealand has a lot of gangs, biker gangs, for example, uh, who are already into the drugs trade, who would move quite effortlessly into the illicit tobacco trade. And I think that would be a bad thing to happen. And, you know, they haven't really taken account of how that might play out in practice. Mm, fair enough. So what are some some uh, fatal flaws um, that you've identified in terms of, of the modelling? Well, they, they've modelled these policies um, to try and see what effect it will have on um, on quitting smoking and therefore on health. And the models show spectacular results. They they show really really good results. But there's there's sort of three main failures really. They they've based their modelling on clinical trials. So this is where you you, you give um, a, a low nicotine cigarette to somebody in a trial and see what happens. Um, <clears throat> and that's just completely different to what happens when you impose a rule on a marketplace where people, you know, aren't necessarily volunteers. They have to buy the products. Um, they, uh, they, you know, they... They're not incentivized to switch or anything like that. And you can't control their choices. So 
they've used a really inappropriate basis for modeling and they've massively exaggerated the effects of uh, reduced nicotine cigarettes in that modeling. But the main thing I think that they've missed is the fact that people will switch to things other than using these denicotinized cigarettes. They will, they will access a black market, they will switch to vaping, uh, they will use other tobacco products. And unless you model what people are really going to do in real life, all you've got is a paper exercise that doesn't mm. really tell you anything. And I think that's the problem, is that they haven't properly understood how a black market will form and what effect it will have on people. Then I think there's another, there's another class of problems here, is, you know, it's quite... Uh, patronizing uh, and quite infantilizing to adults to try to get them to change their behaviors simply by taking their regular cigarettes away from them. Mm. Um, I'm uncomfortable with that. I think it's much better for the governments to work through encouragement and support rather than sort of mandating that people should stop smoking these cigarettes, more likely to be successful less likely to have a political backlash, more more fair and respectful of the citizens whom it's trying to help, uh, rather than sort of, you know, basically just depriving them of what they're used to and hoping that they'll do something more virtuous. Yeah, yeah. And um, is that what you would advise to the, to the New Zealand government? Well, what, what's really bizarre about this is the New Zealand government has a very successful policy Uh, in encouraging people to switch from smoking to vaping. And what they've seen is reductions uh, in smoking that are already outpacing what their models suggest they would get if they effectively banned cigarettes using this denicotinization measure. So they already have a very successful policy. So my advice to them, and and it's not just me, many people would suggest this, is that, is that they should push that policy as hard as they can for as long as they can and see what they can achieve by consent through encouragement and support for people to switch rather than by coercion, by trying to make them switch um, to, you know, by essentially taking regular cigarettes off the market. Uh, I'm no fan of cigarettes. I've been an opponent of smoking and the tobacco industry mm all my life, but I think there's a better way of doing public health than using these very authoritarian, very coercive measures um, that will have unintended consequences like black markets and will frankly annoy the citizens that they are supposedly there to support. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you, we, did, we, did, we did talk about, about vaping and you explained that how vapes are, are helpful and, and they're less uh, harmful as well. But many um, people that, that don't smoke, never smokers, they, they still take that up. So there is a fear uh, New Zealand's new law will, will give rise to, to it. What happened when e-cigarette age restrictions were, were introduced in the United States? And what can we learn from it with, with regards to teens who were always clean of smoked cigarettes? Well, um, so I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot in that question. Um, I think at the moment, very few adults are taking up uh, e-cigarettes who've not been smokers in the past. Uh, so, so the issue is what happens with adolescents. Mm. Um, now, there are a whole group of adolescents who never smoke 
uh, who take up e-cigarettes and people say that's a problem. But the problem with that analysis is that we don't know what would have happened in the absence of e-cigarettes. Many of them would have gone on to be smokers. And what we find is in the United States that the most frequent and intense adolescent users of e-cigarettes are the young people who have the characteristics that would have meant they would have become smokers. Okay, so even in people who are aged under 18 or under 21, e-cigarettes are displacing smoking, but without the kids ever starting to smoke in the first place, uh, if you see what I mean. Now, there's probably another group of people who are experimenting and trialing and messing around. These are the infrequent users, and they're using these products at parties and so on, um, sharing them, but they're not seriously or intensively using them. Now, although, although it's a natural cause for any parent's concern, as public health experts, we should be less concerned about them because they are not people who will continue to use these products over the long term or develop entrenched habits um, or be harmed by them. But even if they do, we have to remember that these products are much, much less risky than smoking. Mm. And our main concern should be the health effects of smoking, the cancer, the cardiovascular disease, the lung uh, respiratory illnesses. Now, age restrictions on e-cigarettes in the United States can slow down the uptake, we've seen, can slow down the uptake of e-cigarettes. But does that have an effect, a negative effect, by increasing the level of smoking that you see? And what what we have seen is that sometimes measures that are introduced to reduce vaping have the effect of increasing smoking. And that's particularly the case with taxes, for example. You put a tax on an e-cigarette. Yes, you do well, you get a reduction in e-cigarette use, but you get an increase in the much more harmful cigarette use. So when you're judging these um, products and these policies, you have to look at the whole. You have to look at both smoking products and e-cigarette products and be careful that something that's done to reduce vaping doesn't have the unintended consequence of increasing smoking. Mm. Well, um, Clive, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Thank you very much for your uh, answers and it was um, amazing having you here on on the Voice of Islam radio and and hopefully we can uh, have you back again soon. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very very much. Bye. That was um, that was Clive Bates. Um, he who was um, he's a consultant in sustainability and public health. Uh, let's go forward, and we have our second guest for today, which is Dr. Jude Ball. Um, Jude Ball, Dr. Jude Ball, is a research fellow in the Aspire 2025 Tobacco Control Research Group at the Department of Public Health, uh, University of Otago, Wellington. Her research focuses on uh, adolescent substance use. Uh, Dr. Jude Ball, good morning from uh, the UK. Good morning. How are you? You okay? Very well, thank you. It's been a beautiful sunny day here. Oh, that's good. That's good. Right, so, um, uh, Doctor, how has uh, smoking and and, uh, other such substance use decreased among adolescents? Um, Well, in New Zealand and around the the world in terms of the high-income countries, there has been a big decline in adolescent substance use, particularly smoking. So, for example, in New Zealand, back in 1999, 
16% of 14 to 15-year-olds smoked daily. Uh, that figure is now 2% or fewer and has been since 2016. So it's been a massive shift in adolescent behaviour, uh, which is great news. Mm. Um, but the bad news is that smoking is still common in Indigenous Māori adolescents and in young people in deprived neighbourhoods. And also we're seeing that young people are increasingly taking up smoking in young adulthood, so when they're aged 16 to 24 Mm. Although we've had a lot of success with reducing smoking in that young age group, it's not flowing through to adulthood, unfortunately. Okay, okay. Um, on the other hand, uh, vaping is is on the rise among the youth. Uh, how does it affect? That's right. How does how does how does vaping's effects, you know, differ from from of uh, smoked cigarettes? Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting that we've seen this big decline in alcohol use, cannabis use. Hmm. cigarette use in New Zealand and yet vaping is going up and that's the same in, in many other countries. Yeah. Um, so as, as your previous um, guest said, vaping is less harmful than smoking. Um, it doesn't have the tar and there are fewer toxins that people are taking into their bodies, but it is still harmful. Hmm. Um, so, if, I mean, compared to smoking, like for smokers, about at least half of people who smoke long term will die young, die early from a smoking related illness. Mm. Um, so smoking is a huge killer. Yeah, and so although and, vaping is, mm. yeah, and and um, you you mentioned that how a lot of um, vaping is on the rise is is on the rise in the UK. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I I see a lot of people myself. I see a lot of the youngsters out on the streets, mm -hmm. um, and it. it it is concerning as well at the same time, but it's um, it's like yeah, it's better than smoking, um, from what from what yeah. the research so 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 fair enough. Um, That's right, but it it is a worry, and we're seeing you know kids as young as eleven and twelve now vaping in New Zealand. It's probably the same in the UK. Yeah, yeah. and vaping is is much higher than smoking has been for a long time in yeah. New Zealand. So, it is a concern. Given uh, that the amount of of smokers has has decreased substantially in the mm -hmm. in, in the past decade, um, do you believe that the government should focus on tackling the increasing use of vapes, e-cigarettes, or heated tobacco instead? Yeah, I think governments need to be tackling both vaping and smoking. Um, so the smoking issue hasn't been solved by a long stretch. I mean, in the UK, I think it's still 75,000 mm. people a year dying from smoking-related illnesses. Mm. And in your introduction, you, you gave a good outline of the problems associated with smoking. So they haven't gone away. They've reduced, um, but governments still need to be really focused on reducing smoking as well as addressing youth vaping. But for some smokers, you know, as Clive Bates said, vaping can be a way out of smoking and a less harmful alternative for people who are aren't able to give up nicotine completely mm -hmm. you know um uh, dr jude it, it is said that the forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest um mm -hmm. will a ban on cigarettes potentially have an opposite effect and create a higher appeal among the youth well i think we really need to look at this particular policy in context so in the New Zealand situation, it's part of a, um, a broader um, strategy, which was launched last year, and there are six strands to that strategy. Um, so the smoke-free generation policy is just one of those strands. Um, and you're 
previous interviewee talked a lot about the need to encourage smokers to quit and provide support. Well, that's happening too. You know, this isn't happening in isolation. Hmm. Um, There's a denicotinization program reducing retail. And in fact, by the time this policy comes in, you know, it's at least five years away before it's actually going to make a difference. Hmm. We're hoping that smoking will have all but disappeared anyway. So it's really an insurance policy to make sure that smoking never comes back in Mm. New Zealand. Fair enough. So I think in the New Zealand context, um, our society is ready for it. Um, New Zealanders are keen to have a smoke-free nation. In fact, my colleagues have done some research with young people aged 16 and 17 and asked their opinions about this policy. Um, And in fact, the majority are really supportive. Uh, They can see the value in having freedom from tobacco addiction. Mm. Um, and freedom from an industry that's pushing this deadly product. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a minority who want the freedom to to be able to buy cigarettes, uh, but the majority really um, they're into this vision of a smoke-free nation. Well, that's. Um, so I think in New Zealand, the policy will be successful. It doesn't mm. necessarily mean it would work elsewhere. That's that's brilliant, and and you know. Um, our prayers are with New Zealand and and with this whole policy and and with the youth, that um, you know if they're able to be free and if they're there if you guys are working for it and everybody is is willing to go ahead with it then you know may may God bless this scheme and and uh, make sure that you have a, a healthy and bright future. Um, Thank you for your blessing. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Jude, uh, for the benefits of our listeners, uh, would you kindly shed some light on the work you do with the Aspire 2025 Tobacco Control Research Group and the Adolescent Health Research Group? Yes, so the Aspire 2025 Research Group, um, we're based at Otago University and we do uh, policy-related research um, to support exactly the kind of policies that New Zealand is implementing to make sure that they're evidence-based. And so I wear two hats. My other research group um, is across universities with a focus on adolescent health and wellbeing. Um, So my role is really monitoring youth trends, not only in smoking, but also mental health and other substances, um, and researching policy-level changes that might support healthy young people. Right. Well, uh, Dr. Jude Ball, uh, it was um, uh, it was an honour to have you here. Uh, thank you very much for for shedding light on on our on our questions and joining us at the Voice of Islam Radio. And hopefully, we can we can have you back in the near future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Bye. That was Dr. Jude Ball, um, uh, who is a research fellow in the Aspire 2025 Tobacco Control Research Group, and. Our both guests have have um, shed some very good uh, light on on our uh, segment for today. Let's um, continue with, uh, with 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 the segment, and I'd like to just point out a couple of of um, uh, points um, in regards to to um, what the what the um, the current. Uh, Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, His Holiness uh, Mirza Masrur Ahmad, he has he has said um, whilst instructing on developing noble character and self-control. You know, in in regards to this, he has mentioned that the smoking of cigarettes or that of use of shisha are also examples of of vices that are spreading. Now, 
Um, for many people, this may be seen as uh, an an extreme view, but um, when we need to we need to stop. You know, if, if we know it's bad, that's why we're trying to stop people from smoking and and going ahead with with uh, living with um, vapes and 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 all all types of tobacco use. Um, so it does it does bring in a bit of a bad bad character, but um, we we can pray for people that that. May may Allah the Almighty help people and 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 uh, give them self control to stop smoking if they, if they are willing to as well. <coughs> there was um, there 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 are many ways of trying to to um, stop smoking, and from from an Islamic point of view, I could say that there are benefits of 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 fasting. Um, when we fast in Islam, especially when we fast, we we fast from uh, sunrise to sunset, and we don't eat or drink uh, for the for in the way of Allah, right? So there are many uh, Muslim smokers who, when they when they go through the month of Ramadan, uh, they actually do um, cut down on the on the intake of nicotine and and tobacco products, and they have uh, many people have come to to a point where they have actually stopped smoking as well. There was once a a um, um, uh, the, 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 the yes sorry, His Holiness uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, on whom be peace. He once said that um, uh, had tobacco existed in the time of the of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he would have prohibited it. Now. We're talking about the the Holy Prophet, the founder of of uh, Islam, who came um, uh, fourteen fifteen hundred years ago, and 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 that was uh, smoking. Obviously, hadn't didn't exist back then. And I mean, uh, as Islam does stop from from all small vices and and teaches us to become better human beings, um, I'm pretty sure as well that that would have been the case. Uh, Back in them days as well. Whilst uh, some smoke-free tobacco products are likely less harmful than than cigarettes, they are they are not shown to help quit tobacco use, and still carry health risks including lung cancer, lung disease, potential exposure to toxic substances, and harm to brain development and fetal health. Not to mention the lifestyle and economic consequences of a highly addictive product. Um, dear listeners. Uh, it is it is a good time to stop smoking and to stop uh, vaping and to better our healths and may uh, Allah the Almighty enable uh, everyone to 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 be smoke free and we will go on to the news break for today and um, we will come back after the new news break. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Um, dear listeners, welcome back to the to the breakfast show um, where the first segment uh, was coming to an end which um, was 
which was in regards to to smoking uh, and we had uh, brilliant uh, guests with us as well um i have a i have a uh, uh, an audio clip which i would like to to play um it's an it's a, it's a question uh, answered by the, the the fourth caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community his holiness mirza tahir ahmed may allah have mercy on him in regards to islam um uh, permitting smoking my question is is it illegal for um, ahmadiyya to smoke and if not why ahmadiyya what i have spoke you are too young to ask this question isn't it <laughs> I have told repeatedly that to smoke is not religiously forbidden in Islam and Ahmadiyat is Islam so it is not forbidden in Islam but because it's bad for health so it is discouraged very strongly poisons are not forbidden are they Pardon? poisons are not forbidden in Islam poisons poisons yes are they forbidden no there are many sort of dirty foods which are not even mentioned in the Quran or in traditions which are not forbidden but your own uh, sense of discrimination would tell you that this food is not good for me that food is good bad for, bad for me and so on and so forth so some choices are left to you to make dear listeners that was the fourth caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim association um in regards to to um does islam uh, permit smoking moving forward to segment 2 um which is Miscarriage is it swayed by one's emotional state Harry and Meghan what's the link between stress and 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 miscarriage Now uh dear listeners the time is um 4 past well nearly 5 past 8 now and if um anyone is interested in in um calling and or or uh, uh, giving their their sharing their views or opinions uh, do feel free to call in um on 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 0208 Six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or or give us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Now the the gist of of um, the story is that um, Meghan wrote the 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 Duchess of Sussex back in two thousand and twenty after undergoing a miscarriage that I knew as I clutched my my first born child that I was losing my second. Now she and her husband Harry Duke of Sussex uh, claim stress was the cause in their newly released docu- uh, uh, Netflix documentary. So what are miscarriages? Why do they happen and how common are they? Uh a miscarriage is is um the spontaneous loss of a of a um of 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 a pregnancy before the 24th week and Uh, according that's that's according to the to the british sources like like the nhs or the 20th week according to most american sources such as the mayo clinic it is known as an as an early miscarriage if it occurs within the first 12 weeks uh, and late if it's between 12 to 24 they are usually caused by random uh, chromo- chromosomal uh, abnormalities problems in in the fetus dna that prevent normal development after 3 months it can be caused by many factors such as infection the the woman's age and the weakening of the cervix about 1 in 5 pregnancies miscarry however the actual number may be higher as many aren't recorded so what are megan and and harry alleging and what is the current medical consensus 
The Duke and Duchess of, of Sussex blame stress as the cause for Meghan's miscarriage, more specifically the stress caused by their legal fight with the tabloid. Do we absolutely know that the miscarriage was caused by that? Of course we don't, says Prince Harry in the Netflix series. But bearing in mind the stress, the lack of sleep, I can say from what I saw that the miscarriage was created by what they were trying to do to her. Experts agree that enough research has not been done on miscarriage and its causes. The NHS explicitly states it as a misconception about miscarriage on their website. An increased risk of miscarriage is not linked to your emotional state during pregnancy such as being stressed or depressed. And charities agree that stress is not the cause of miscarriage in itself, although there is evidence that there may be a link between stress and, and miscarriage. Uh, dear listeners, we have our um, guest for, for this segment, which is Professor Joyce Harper. Now, uh, uh, Joyce Harper is, a, is an author, academic, scientist and educator. She is Professor of Reproductive Science at University College London in the Institute for Women's Health, where she is Head of the Reproductive Science and Society Group. She is a Director of the em Embryology and PGD Academy, which delivers an, as an online certificate in clinical embryology, founder of Global Women Connected and Reproductive Health at Work. She has worked in the fields of fertility, genetics and reproductive science since 1987, written over 230 scientific papers and published three books. Um, there's, there's a lot more that, that I can go on about, about Joyce um, and, and her, her passion and her work. Um, she is the founder of Reproductive Health at Work, helping companies ensure that, that the reproductive uh, health needs of their staff are catered for. Um, Professor Joyce Harper, good morning and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. Good morning, lovely to speak to you. Um, so let's get straight into it, um, uh, Professor. Can miscarriage, can can sorry, can stress uh, directly or or indirectly uh, precipitate uh, miscarriage? Well, as as you've summarised, um, you are totally correct. Most of the major medical organisations, including the World Health Organisation, March times are NHS in the UK, um, the, also the Tommy's campaign are the UK campaign that have a lot of information and support for miscarriage. None of them consider stress as a, or stress alone as a direct cause of miscarriage. But obviously when someone has a miscarriage, they want to try and find out why this has, hap has happened. Mm. And the problem with stress is that it's a very difficult um, thing to measure. So we can measure one of the stress hormones such as cortisol, um, but what's caused the stress? That's that's the question. Yeah. It's it's not that um, you know, you know, st something causes stress. So we've got several things at play here. Um, so there is some research that indirectly stress can cause um, some miscarriage, but it's probably what's underlined the stress that's caused the miscarriage. So this is why we say stress alone does not cause miscarriage, but underlying cause of stress, but we, we've got very research on this actually, which is a huge shame. Um, the underlying stress uh, can certainly be a risk factor for abnormal uh, pregnancy and problems with the pregnancy. Right. 
Um, what are the other potential factors then? Um, well, the, the important thing that many people don't realise is that um, up to about 20%, so about one in five pregnancies end in miscarriage. And yeah. it's something, um, I've, I've been doing a lot of work teaching in schools um, and, and as you said, teaching in companies. And people are not really aware of this. And if you're not aware of this and then you have a miscarriage, it's only then that you, you may start trying to find out this. So obviously a, a miscarriage is an incredibly um, upsetting and, and stressful <laughs> event hmm. for the couple to go through. So it's important to, to understand that it's unfortunately not a rare occurrence. You know, one in five pregnancies is certainly not rare. That's a very high number. And most of the problems that cause a miscarriage are actually issues around the fetus. There are um, often problems with the, the chromosomes and the genes within the fetus. So there's absolutely nothing anyone could do to really get over that. But it's really important for uh, the woman especially, but also the man will talk about what to do before you get pregnant in a moment. But um, when, when a woman's pregnant, it's really important that her, she looks after her physical and mental health. So there are some risk factors that can increase the risk of miscarriage. So if, if a woman is obese, then she's got more of a chance of miscarrying. Um, if she smokes, uses any drugs, uh, drinks a lot of caffeine, also drinks a lot of alcohol, these are all risk factors that um, have been linked. Um, and you can see that, that stress can be related to some of those. So um, often people that overeat are stressed. Um, if it causes or affects, you know, sometimes it's stress, they may smoke more or drink drink more alcohol or drink more caffeine. So these two factors are, are really wound up together, these mm. physical and mental issues and the stress and the miscarriage. And as you said at the beginning, we really haven't done enough research around this. And it's really, really important for us to find out more so that we can help people and give them advice and try and, and reduce this risk. But I just want to stress that the majority of miscarriages are caused by problems within the fetus. And there's nothing that we could do to overcome that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, a stress may not cause the miscarriage. Um, and obviously, like you said, it's it's, it's not right for the pre uh, pregnant person's health uh, at the same time. Um, yourself as an as an advocate for good good uh, reproductive health at work. Uh, what steps can we take to ensure that um, uh, reproductive health needs are met in the workplace? Oh, well, this, this is a really hot topic. And it's, uh, in the UK, we have the Women's Health Strategy, hmm. which is uh, finally asking women what they need to help support them throughout their reproductive life. And the reproductive life is, is from when we start our, our periods, our menstrual cycle, puberty, right through to the menopause. But I think it's really important to take on board that reproductive health is not just a woman's issue, it's a, it's a man's issue as well. And things like miscarriage would certainly affect the, the man equally. You know, men, men will obviously become very uh, affected if, if their pregnancy miscarries and then needs to support the woman through this. So in the workplace, it's really important to have support for all aspects of our reproductive health. And I always talk about the four pillars of well-being. And these are um, our nutrition, exercise, our sleep, and our mental health. And throughout our life, not just in reproductive health, but in, in all of our health, 
really really important to make sure we look after those four pillars so for the nutrition we need to be eating well we need to be cooking our food at home we need to eat lots of varieties of food we we shouldn't eat processed food we shouldn't drink too much alcohol we've really got to take on board our, our nutrition for our overall health and then our exercise you know i certainly see with the work i do with women um, but, but globally, women do not exercise as much as men. And exercise, we have this thing in our, in our head about exercise and weight and exercise and what we look like. And we need to really separate this. Exercise is, a, is about our health. And we know that there is so much data about exercise and many diseases. So exercise can reduce your risk of cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, diabetes, and the list goes on and on and on. So what we've got to do, especially good for our new year now, 2023, is to focus on exercise being about our health and being able to have a healthy life longer uh, is really, really paramount uh, with, with exercise. So I cannot stress enough about how exercise is so important in our life. And the World Health Organization suggests um, different numbers of what we should do, but we need to be exercising really about three to four times a week for at least about 30 minutes with a, a wide variety of exercises. So not, not just going for a super fast run every day. We need to do a bit of yoga and stretching. We need to do weights hmm. um, and we need to do things that are good for our cardio uh, health as well. And then we've got sleep. You know, I'm sure we're all aware when we don't sleep well, we are very irritable. We are stressed. Um, yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we're really affected. It affects our day-to-day -day function. And our nutrition and exercise also feeds into to our sleep. And it also they all feed into our mental health. So it's really important. And again, being the start of the year, it's a good time to think about these four pillars of well-being and really dedicate time to them. Because in, in, in our workplace and in our private lives, if we haven't balanced these, we can become stressed, irritable, anxious, depressed. You know, the list of the mental health issues and the physical of not balancing these pillars of well-being are really immense. And, and in the workplace, we need to make sure that we give our staff time to um, exercise. I, th I think I find working at home now that I start working at 8 a.m. instead of going to the, you know, doing some exercise. <laughs> I am going mm. to go and do a workout at half past nine this morning. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to get this new balance. I think many of us are, are, are doing more work at home. So at our workplace needs to support us to make sure we have time because all of these things I've mentioned, they, they take time and you know, they all relate together. So it's really important that in the workplace we have um, a system there that makes sure the workplace are aware of reproductive health. So I do a lot of work going into companies to talk about reproductive health um, and that they support all of their employees when they need support with reproductive health. So if there's been a miscarriage for the couple, um, if a woman's having problems with her, her periods or her menopause, or if a couple are trying to and experiencing infertility that can be very stressful because there's lots of tests and it takes again a lot of time so employers need to be aware and they need to be helping their employees look after their well-being and it's really really important mm. for their, their productivity and their motivation at work 
it's a win-win situation if we support our employees then they can they'll they'll produce better work so it's you know it's crazy for us not to do this but it's becoming on the agenda of many companies now which is great yeah and um coming back to your point of of how uh, exercising is for your own health my my personal view is that what's going on is that there are a lot of uh, social influencers who who um show that they're fit and how uh, it's only because they go to the gym and and they work out and people are just looking at that and they want to have that instead of actually um trying to be healthy and 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 fit so that is uh, the point, um, dear listeners, do try to take care of your health and and not just about the um, the, the looks of your of your body. Um, Professor, what do you advise uh, people before conceiving um, to 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 prevent miscarriage uh, as part of the international fertility education initiative you have founded? So th- thank you for mentioning the initiative. So um, I have managed to get together some of the world leaders who are working on reproductive health. Um, there's some fab- fabulous work being done in different countries, and we formed this International Fertility Education Initiative. And the last two years have been doing lots of groundwork to see what sort of information we are giving the public to help them have good reproductive health. So um, th- this year is all about us producing resources, and we are going want to help the public. We're aware that they're they're not educated about this, so how mm. would they know? that they've got to look after these things and, you know, as I said, the information about miscarriage, etc. How would they know this if they're not taught about this? And we did a a survey in schools uh, last year to ask teenagers what information they're taught at school. And things like miscarriage, they're they're just not taught about it. It's, It's not discussed at school at all. So our reproductive health is really, really important and our preconception health, as you said, So before a a couple get pregnant, it's important for the man and the woman, it's really key for both of them to look after their well-being. So I think for many years we've um, almost dismissed the influence of the man on a a pregnancy and on the health of the child, but there's now research that's showing the man's health is so important. And an unhealthy man who fathers a child can influence the long-term health of their future children. So this is why it's really important to understand everything I'm talking about. Mm. It's not just women's issues. Mm. It's it's two of us here. It's yeah, man, yeah. Men, men and women. Yeah. Um, so preconception health for men and women, again, we're back to our pillars of well-being. Obesity is a big one. Um, obesity for men and women affects fertility, affects your chance of getting pregnant, and, and again, affects the long-term health of the child. Mm but also looking after, again, our nutrition. When you're trying to get pregnant, exercise is very good, but moderate. So, you know, if you're doing excessive exercise, like an elite, elite athlete, um, they, can, they can have problems getting pregnant. So an elite female athlete, they can become clean um, that the reproductive hormones actually stop working. So as I said, an elite female athletes don't actually have a menstrual cycle anymore. So they obviously would have problems getting pregnant. That's that's because the hormones that are involved in our reproductive cycle are um, they're fat soluble. They need they need a bit of fat Mm. there um, for the woman to function properly. Mm. So this is why when we when we see, as you said, some of the social media people, you know, men and women with their six packs and very lean. um, Certainly for women, and I've written quite a lot about this. You know, this this is not not healthy for a woman. 
to, to look like that. We, we are supposed to be um, not as lean as a man, and, and it does affect these hormones. So we have to be very careful. So everything in moderation, yeah. moderate exercise, um, try and really make sure we balance our, our pillars of well-being. Um, I don't think necessarily people... I've, I've heard a woman before who was 38, and she said, oh, well, I need to sort out all my health before I get pregnant. So I think, you know, if, if you've got the time and you're planning this, this is an ideal thing to do, mm. to really get fit and healthy before you embark on a pregnancy for both man and woman. Um, but if you're if you're an older age woman and you're trying to get pregnant, um, and if you, you know, it's never too late to, to balance yeah, these, yeah. these pillars of well-being. Yeah. Um, but we have to think about age in, in that as well. Um, would you like to tell our listeners about your, your latest book, your fertile years, what you need to know to make informed choices? Yes, so thank you. As I've said, so little of this information is taught to the public. And it's really, I, I want people to have this information so they can make informed choices about their reproductive or fertile years. And so my, my book has covered everything that I've been talking about. And what I've tried to do there is explain to people, men and women, how our reproductive system works from right from the through to the menopause. But I've tried to cover um, men's views as well in this. And so we've, I've looked at uh, normal fertility in the menstrual cycle, but also infertility and pregnancy. I've talked about contraception, sexually transmitted infections. Um, and then also I finish on the menopause and also a little bit about the future hmm. of, of where we be. Um, but I, I do write also a lot of blogs, which I cover um, aspects that I've covered in the book. Um, and I have them on my website, globalwomenconnected.com. And I'm really pleased to announce that this year I'm starting a blog and it's going to be called Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? Which is exactly what I've been saying mm -hmm. in this interview. We haven't told the public about these things. And we have so many people say to us, you know, after I've done a talk, why didn't I know this before? Mm -hmm. um, so this is my new podcast. It's coming out this month. And I've got an amazing array of Brilliant. fabulous guests Brilliant. who are going to debunk some of the myths around health. We're, we're not going to just cover reproductive health. We're going to have an emphasis on that, but we're going to cover all health. Brilliant. And we're going to have a lots of discussion about, as I said, nutrition, exercise, Well, uh, Professor Joyce Harper, I, um, I would like to give you all the, the, the look in the world. May um, God Almighty help you and, and help you on this journey of yours in, in helping um, all, <clears throat> all the uh, youth out there and, and people trying to get pregnant so that people can be uh, uh, healthy in their pregnancies. Uh, it, was, uh, it was very nice having you here at the Voice of Islam Radio and um, hopefully we can have you with us uh, again. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was uh, Professor Joyce Harper. Now, dear listeners, we have uh, our next um, our next guest, who is Ruth Bender Atik. Um, Ruth Bender Atik is the is the national director of the Miscarriage Association, the UK charity that offers support and information to anyone who has been affected by miscarriage, um, ectopic pregnancy, or molar pregnancy. Uh, Ruth Bender, good morning and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, Ruth, is there any research that shows a, a correlation or link between stress and miscarriage? 
That's such a good question, and and, and I I imagine it comes from um, some of the some of the uh, interviews that have been done and the reporting that's been done uh, around um, Harry and and Meghan, where they've been talking about could it be stress that caused mm. her miscarriage. Yeah. I mean, the, the 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 truth is that there is, you know, there have been several research studies that have definitely shown that there is a link between stress and miscarriage, and and that's important and perhaps not surprising. However, what it hasn't shown is that that stress itself actually causes miscarriage. So when you see a link between something. It shows that, you know, there is some relationship between the two, but it doesn't necessarily show you that one causes the other. So so that's what's difficult about it, that people will, will very often think, well, gosh, um, I've been very stressed throughout my throughout my pregnancy. So now that I've miscarried, thinking back, that must have been what hmm. caused it. But it might have been something entirely different. So... Um... Okay. Okay. Uh, if so, so, so the studies uh, they show that stress actually um, uh, causes miscarriage, or could it be the other way around? Well, the the studies don't show that stress actually causes miscarriage. What they show is that there's a link. So, for example, if you've got somebody who's had oh, I don't know, even recurrent miscarriages, you can imagine that people become very, very distressed, and that there is stress. So. So although there's a link, it could be, first of all, that we don't know, there is no evidence that stress itself causes the miscarriage. But it could also be that the miscarriage causes stress. Hmm. So you don't really know which way around it goes. And I think, I think the other thing that we, we can see is that some of the studies, for example, have shown that there is an even closer link between women who have very uh, sustained long-term stress at work, so work-related stress. So this might be because they're working exceptionally long hours or it's a particularly demanding job. And that could be, you know, working as a, as, as a midwife or it could be working as a, as, a, as a lawyer and doing all sorts of long hours. But, you, but again, if they miscarry and and they they are also having a, a stressful lifestyle, you don't know whether it's the stress that is causing or increasing the risk of miscarriage, or whether it's the other things that go along with that: not enough sleep, not yeah. eating properly, not getting rest, maybe smoking, maybe drinking. There can be all sorts of other things that are associated with that that lifestyle. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, indeed. So. Um... Obviously, if if stress is not the direct, you know, the cause of of miscarriage, then why is there this this um, this this misconception that that is 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 amongst the pregnant women that they worry that stress is the cause? If you understand what? Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, that's such a good question. I think I think what tends to happen is that if you have a miscarriage, I mean, for most people, miscarriage is a shock. It's it mm. comes out of the blue. They didn't expect it. Um, it's it's very frightening. It's very upsetting. And one of the first things they ask themselves is, well, why? Why did it happen to me and not to so-and-so down the road? How come? Mm. And you start looking for reasons. Um, most women never have investigations or tests to see why, okay. the, you know, if there's any obvious causes. And when you don't have an answer, you kind of fill the gap. 
So you think, well, it must be something I did or didn't do. But that's not necessarily the case. So when you're thinking it might be something I did, you might think it's something you ate or some, or because you exercised too much. I'm thinking about your last speaker. Um, it, it, you know, you're thinking of anything, and stress mm. is one of the things that gets put into that picture. Mm-hmm. So then, how can this this mindset lead to a, a, a vicious cycle for many? Well, it, 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 the trouble is that if you start worrying, uh, and, and people do, that your miscarriage was caused by stress, then that itself increases your level of stress and anxiety. And I think for women who are pregnant after a miscarriage, they are, they're going to be anxious anyway, because, because having once had a pregnancy that went wrong, you know, that, that miscarried, they'll be worried anyway that the next pregnancy hmm. might also go wrong. That makes sense. But then they worry about being worried, if you see what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. But they worry that the, that the anxiety they've got is actually going to increase the risk for their baby, which is so, so distressing. And it's absolutely not the case. It's normal and understandable to be anxious during pregnancy mm. after miscarriage. Yeah. Um, uh, Ruth, uh, congratulations on the Miscarriage Association marketing, a, a milestone in November. Um, your your fourth <laughs> decade. Um, would you kindly shed some some light on what it stands for and how our listeners can can access your help or support? Uh, you know, we understand you just had a, a New Year challenge uh, that just kicked off. Yes, it's very kind of you to mention our birthday. I mean, I wish it was only me that was forty, but it's not. <laughs> so the, the Miscarriage Association is is marking the fact that we've been around for it's been forty years since since the Miscarriage Association began. And and in a way, I, I'm glad it's here because I know that we're offering really important support and information to people. And in another way, I wish we didn't need to be here. I mm. wish there weren't people still having miscarriages, but the sad truth is that there always will be. We're never going to be able to stop all of them. Yeah. And as long as people need support and information, we're going to be here. So, so yes, you're right. Um, we, we have a, a fundraising event that's, that's kicking off um, this month, January, and it's called Step Up. And we're, we're suggesting to people that they might think about the fact that there's probably around 250,000 miscarriages in the UK mm. each year. I mean, it's not an absolute definite number, but it's, it's an estimate. Yeah. And we're asking people to consider doing during the month of January 250,000 steps for us as a sponsored event, just as a marker really of all those tiny lives that were lost and a way of raising funds for our work. Well, Ruth, um, uh, it was very good having you here on the Voice of Islam radio. Uh, Our prayers are with you that um, uh, may, may God the Almighty continue to bless you and all the work you do in, in helping all all the people out there and uh, helping uh, in the whole department of, of the miscarriages. Um, may, may God Almighty uh, end all types of suffering. Uh, thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you. Uh, dear listeners, that is bringing us towards the end of the second segment. But as we leave, I would like to just a uh, just to uh, mention a few um, uh, points in regards to the work that the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association is doing um, uh, in, in in Sierra Leone. 
the the Ahmadiyya Muslims Women's Association UK um, funded the construction of the Aisha Maternity Hospital in Sierra Leone on the occasion of its centenary. To show gratitude to Allah the Almighty for his blessings upon us at the auspicious occasion um, centenary in, in of, of the of the Lejna UK in 2022 in the UK, um, they managed to build a maternity hospital to help the sisters out in Sierra Leone. Um, it is estimate that for every 100,000 live births, um, 1,360 mothers die due to complications during or after childbirth. Um, another point is that they they are uh, already existing maternity wards instituted by um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association in in locations like Ghana. Uh, and finally, I just like to mention that all uh, people, uh, everyone, dear listeners, whoever's listening, if you're trying to conceive, if you're trying to um, uh, uh, become get this blessed scheme of becoming a parent. Then do remember that uh, prayer is 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 vital, and and without prayer we can't um, expect. Well, we can, but prayer gives the blessings, and uh, it will really shed a lot of a lot of uh, blessings on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and 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 with prayers, you will have a a, a successful pregnancy, hopefully. And prayers uh, should be brought into um, every aspect of of our lives as well. Moving forward on to uh, segment three, which is education on anti-Semitism ought to be included in UK's curriculum, stresses government advisor. UK schools must teach, uh, must teach about anti-Semitism, says government advisor. Despite the, the, the Holocaust being a compulsory part of, of British school curriculum, Lord John Mann, anti-Semitism advisor, urges awareness on modern Semitism to be present in schools also. Now, uh, what is anti-Semitism and how does the Holocaust tie into it? Uh, dear listeners, anti-Semitism is, is defined as a hatred or hostility towards Jewish people, whereby the Jewish community or individuals of ethnic Jewish descent are targeted and prejudice is shown towards them. Antisemitism can often be linked back to the treatment of Jesus shown by the Jews, who, according to early churches, were the murderers of Jesus and, and agents of the, the devil. With the spread of Christianity across the whole world, these ideologies also spread. Cases of antisemitism cases of anti antisemitism in the Middle Ages have also been recorded whereby Jews were banned from owning land and were not allowed to hold many types of jobs. Therefore, they made a living through trade and, and commerce. In the 19th and 20th century, a new form of, of anti-Semitism began. After Germany's defeat in the World War I, Adolf Hitler blamed the small German Jewish population for the, for the, for the country's loss. However, this was of course not true. With Hitler's rise to power, Close to the start of the Second World War, anti-Semitism began to spread rapidly among the obedient German population. Many Germans simply accepted the racist policies of the Nazi regime, since the regime pr promised to bring economic stability back to the country as well as making it into the world power it once was. The Holocaust occurred in 1933 where Jews were systematically targeted 
persecuted and killed by the Nazi regime. Although it is widely known that the massacre of Jews took place in Europe, many Jews were also persecuted in North Africa till 1945, thus also falling under the Holocaust. During the Holocaust, the, the, the UK took in around 10,000 Jewish children in a program called Kinder Transport. Although these children had been saved, they faced anti-Semitism when integrating with the British community and were sometimes mistreated by their British hosts. Anti-Semitic incidents are constantly recorded every day with a more comprehensive collection of data published by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights for Anti-Semitic Crimes in the EU between 2011 and 2021. Now, dear listeners, uh, we have our our guest um, for this segment. Uh, our guest is is Jeff Barton. Jeff Barton is General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, representing twenty two thousand leaders of schools and colleges across the UK. Before that, he was an English teacher and for fifteen years a, a head teacher. Jeff Barton, good morning and and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. Good morning and very, very pleased to be here with such an important subject. Brilliant. Um, Jeff, could you, could you please uh, describe what the current uh, curriculum is like in, in terms of Judaism and, and anti-Semitism? Yeah, it's probably worth just saying first, Baris, that there's something which a lot of people perhaps don't realise about the way in which religious education is taught. Uh, in, in England in particular, mm. and that is that whilst we've got a national curriculum, the final decision about what is in the curriculum belongs to locally organised advisory groups. So it means that your experience of religious education in one part of the country, let's say Birmingham, might be very different from another part of the country, let's say Southampton. Yeah. And I think there are both advantages and disadvantages to that, which we might want to explore in a moment. It's also just worth saying that the amount of religious education that a child in, in, in a normal state school will receive will be perhaps an hour a week mm. and perhaps less than that. So to cover quite complicated subjects, you haven't got a huge amount of time. And therefore, to go straight to your question, how is Judaism taught and how much of it is taught? The answer is probably not a great deal and one of the complaints in the report which has been made which we're talking about today is that actually when judaism and the jewish faith is talked about it's it's really covered through the holocaust which comes up between the age of 11 and 14 but it could be for some children they don't get any other reference to what the jewish faith might contain or why anti-semitism occurs what it is and what we should do about it so i guess that's a long way of saying probably not a, not a lot of attention is given to that but then not a lot of attention is given to various faiths yeah. in Pickwood, sir. yeah i was just going to say that as well um as a former head teacher how can and uh, can schools educate students more about anti-semitism besides say judaism uh, taught in rs uh, in religion studies or the holocaust in in history well i think it's a really good point because otherwise we assume that it's only rs and it's only history that have a responsibility to teach about anti-Semitism. And actually, if if we believe, as, as I do, that our schools should be a a kind of microcosm of our society at its best, that they should they should embrace people of all backgrounds or colours or faiths 
if we believe that that's the case, then you can't leave that to religious studies and to history. It should be something which actually is showing up across the curriculum. So, mm -hmm. for example, I was an English teacher for 32 years. One of the things I particularly liked to do was to choose texts which were challenging. And one of the texts I particularly liked to teach with young people was Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Now, that's that's a pretty complex text not just because the language is complex but it deals with some very very difficult issues but if young people aren't having teachers helping them to navigate through difficult issues well we leave them at the mercy of prejudice or we leave them at the mercy of social media and therefore i think this should be about the wider curriculum all subjects but also not just subjects the other things that schools do the displays they put on the walls in the corridors how those can teach young people about tolerance and some insights into faith, how our assemblies can yeah, teach yeah. about that. So I think the, the view we, I would take as someone who represents school and college leaders is this, this is a responsibility of all of us in our schools across all subjects and the wider culture of the school. Yeah, and I know you have just touched upon um, how other subjects uh, can um, help, but having been an, an, an English teacher, how can the, the subject's contents and the resources, you know, influence our children's ideas and beliefs? You know, can it can it be utilised as a tool in preventing things like anti-Semitism? Oh, I think it can, because anti-Semitism, like all forms of religious prejudice, tends to arise through ignorance, don't they? Hmm. And the way in which you attack ignorance is through teaching uh, background, te teaching facts, teaching context. And some people are afraid of doing that because they think, well, you know, does that lead to young people jumping to all kinds of assumptions? My experience is you, you have to do it even more in the current age when people are living in communities that are sometimes more polarized. They're certainly living in a social media world, which is more polarized. All the more reason that every teacher has a responsibility to teach a sense of tolerance and to listen to other people's views. Whether I'm a science teacher, a maths teacher, a PE teacher, a primary teacher, that should be something which is deeply in the veins of every school or college culture. You know, in all your years of teaching, um, have you ever come across an, an anti-Semitic uh, anti or, or racist uh, incident? Well, I've come across racist incidents. Okay. Uh, I, I was teaching for a long time in the east of England, and prior to that I was teaching in the north of England. Uh, in, in the east of England, where, where I am, what you get is a largely but not entirely white community. Mm. And therefore, in the comprehensive school that I taught, whilst we had some young people from different faiths and different ethnic backgrounds, it seemed to me that it was particularly important that what we did was to teach about different cultures and different backgrounds. Um, and so one of the things I was most proud of is the way we were able to re run every year a, um, a conference about religion, about faith, and to invite people of different faiths to come in in person so that instead of reading from a textbook, a young person was actually seeing someone who might be Muslim, for example, or, or, or indeed might be an atheist, mm. so that they could question those people and understand that these are human beings and we can learn from each other even if we don't agree with each other. So, yes, I will have come across examples mm. of racism, but I hope also I helped with the team which I led to head some of that off by showing that actually we, we've got so much more in common than yeah, we have yeah. which divides us. Yeah. And that's a, that's a very important for, for all the teachers out there um, to make sure that they, they, they understand these things and they're making the other students at their schools feel, feel safe and, and confident as well. 
Um, do you think enough is being done to teach students about religious hate crime in, in general? And, um, you know, what changes would you like to see in, in, in the British school curriculum to, spare, uh, to, to, to spread awareness on religious persecution? Well, I guess one of, one of the problems is there are so many issues that society is worried about that it's very easy for us to say, well, let's put it into the school curriculum. The reality is the school curriculum will never be able to cover everything that we want it to be able to cover. So there have to be some things that are the responsibility of parents, there have to be some things which are the responsibility of the media and some things which are the responsibility of schools and colleges. It just feels to me that where we are now with society changing a lot, the values of society changing a lot, the patterns of faith and the loss of Christian faith, for example, changing a lot. The, the, the understanding that to be a citizen in the 21st century is different from what it was even 15 years ago yeah. when social media wasn't as invasive, that there needs to be a fundamental review of the curriculum that says, so what are the priorities now? What are the skills, the attributes, the knowledge, the values that we would want every young person mm. from every background to understand? And I don't think that the current government has got the courage to do that, but I really hope that the next government, when it comes in in the next two years, will say, now is the time for us to actually look at the curriculum because things like hate crime, things like anti-Semitism, but also more positively, the celebration of what it is to have faith and why people have faith, or if they've chosen not to have faith, why have they chosen that? All of that should be a fundamental entitlement. In light of your book, If I Were Education Secretary, uh, what are some <laughs> new policies you would implement? Well, actually, that, that would definitely be one of the first ones there. Hmm. Um, it would be to say, let's have a look now at what it is, because, you know, the curriculum we've had has been in place for more than a, a decade now. And a lot has shifted around us, the way we shop, uh, yeah. the way we use maps, the way we use healthcare. Lots has changed. So education needs to take a look at itself and have a look at whether we can depoliticize education. So that would be one thing. And the other thing I would do is to change what we call accountability, which is the way the schools are measured. Because one of the problems for religious education is it doesn't show up in any of the ways that schools are measured. History does, modern foreign languages does, English does, maths does, science does. But religious education can therefore sometimes feel like it's being pushed to the margins in some schools. Now, I'm not saying that we should just judge schools on how much religion they're teaching. Not at all am I saying that. Mm. But I do think one of the things that we know drives school behaviour is what is it that is important and what is it that will be measured by inspection in Ofsted and in performance tables. And I think that those have dominated too much. So the combination of let's have a look at our curriculum, make sure it's fit for purpose, and let's have a look at the way we judge our schools so that school leaders can make the right decisions for the communities they're in. Those two changes, I think, if our education secretary would be the first ones I would try to implement. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, Jeff, it was it was um, uh, it was amazing having you on the on the Voice of Islam radio, and um, you know our prayers are, are with you for for all the work that you're doing uh, in schools and 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 helping in in education sector. Um, may may God well, Almighty be with you and 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 continue to bless all your work. Thank you. Thank you, Mubaris, very much, and happy New Year to all happy you New and all Year your to listeners. you too as well. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. So that was Jeff Barton, General Secretary, uh, Association of School and, and College Leaders. Um, in, in, in order, uh, dear listeners, I just want to mention a, f a, f a few points. Um, you know, in order for a Muslim to, to, be, to truly be following his faith, 
um, he must follow the six commandments of, of faith, you know, which include believing in all prophets of, of God and all the books of, of, of Allah, the, the God. Um, therefore, this would include all Jewish prophets and their books, including the Torah. Um, you know, in, in the Holy Quran, uh, Allah the Almighty has commanded that in the time of war, Muslims must protect places of worship, including churches, temples, synagogues and mosques. And from from uh, um, the the life of the of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. You know, um, we see that his treatment of Jews in in Medina, uh, allowing him allowing them to be to be judged according to their own laws fairly. You know, we see that um, from from the beginning, Islam has shown equality uh, uh, in between all religions, and and that's the main. Um, main teaching and the main understanding which we need to instill in our hearts today as well i have a um an audio clip which i would like to play um it's uh, it's it's, uh, it's this question about uh, studies religious studies in in school i let you know the attitude and uh, doctrines of other people you cannot convince them of the truth of islam it's highly important that you learn everything that comes your way which is, which can be termed as knowledge, or a branch of knowledge. That is, um, I think that was just a part of the clip, unfortunately. But it was an answer. Um, it was, it was, it was answered by the the late uh, fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Mirza Tahir Ahmed. Um, um, the next uh, audio clip which I have, um, we'll play that now. In a small mosque in northern Israel, an unlikely group of Jews, Muslims and Israeli politicians gathered in the name of peace, discussing unity and religious diversity. The conference was hosted by the Ahmadians, a small sect within Islam. We are one creation for one creator. We have one world. We should share this one world with the spirit of brotherhood. This conference is one of our traditions. Uh, it has started uh, at the same time with the inception of the Jamaat, uh, the community itself. And the idea behind this conference uh, is to collect different people, different communities, different religions, and have them all together. Ahmadians have communities in over 200 countries, with each branch hosting conferences of coexistence. This year in Haifa, the event brought together hundreds of people from across Israeli and Palestinian societies. I'm very happy to come to the Ahmadian community. I feel they are interested in peace. I wish there were more people like them in Israel and the world. I really connect to their ideas, to honor people and seek justice, and to respect every man, no matter what he may be. Among the attendees was the top administrator of the chief rabbinate of Israel, who praised the message the Ahmadians are putting out into the world. The chief rabbinate is a full partner in any dialogue that brings people together, that sparks tolerance among different communities with fairness and respect. This place truly symbolizes that, and I think it's right to come here and be a participant. Religious and political leaders led the discussion throughout the evening. Likud policymaker Yehuda Glick 
spoke of years of close cooperation with the community and their leadership. That is the beauty of God. God didn't create us all the same, vice versa. He created us all different. And we're not here to compete with each other, we're here to complete each other. And I'm happy that Mr. Uda came to visit me in my settlement in uh, the Hebron Hills. I'm happy that Mr. Ashraf Uda visited me in the Knesset, he was my guest. And together, we are doing everything we can to promote dialogue between the different religions. Every year, the conference is held, ties between the Holy Land's many religions are bound a little tighter. And the Ahmadian message of peace, love, and unity is sparked once more throughout the country. That was a uh, um, audio clip in regards to Muslims and Jews come together at the Ahmadiyya Muslim Commun uh, Convention in, in Haifa, Israel. Coming back to um, a few more um, points in regards to Islam, um, Dear listeners, you know, the, the, the founder of, of um, Islam, uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He always showed great respect and love for all people. He always taught his, his followers to respect and value all humanity. You know, on, on one occasion, the, the Holy Prophet, he was sitting down, but um, on seeing a, a, a funeral procession passing by, he immediately um, stood up uh, <clears throat> uh, out of uh, as a mark of respect, and then one of the the companions told him that the deceased was a was a Jew and 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 uh, not a Muslim. But then he the, the the you know the the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He replied that was he not human? This shows that how um, you know Islam teaches Muslims to have compassion for for followers of all beliefs. And being sensitive to their feelings and 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 needs. Um, another incident which I want to um, uh, just share with you is that when the when the when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was was meeting with the delegation of of Christians, after some time they became restless and on inquiring, they wanted to to worship, but had uh, nowhere uh, suitable. That's when the the Holy Prophet he invited them to use the mosque. Uh, as their place of worship, the uh, His Holiness, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace, he states that the principle to which we adhere is that we have kindness at heart for the whole of mankind. If anyone sees the house of a Hindu neighbor on fire and does not come forward to help extinguish the fire, most truly I declare that he does not belong to me. If any one of my followers, having seen someone attempting to murder a Christian, does not endeavour to save him, I most truly declare that he does not belong to us. With this, we have um, uh, a lot of examples of modern anti-Semitism as well, and um, just you know, mentioning a, a, a few, you know, in, in influ influential celebrities have uh, have an impact on on anti-Semitism too, as they have a large platform to use to their advantage. Notable examples include Kanye West, who is reported to have openly made anti-Semitic remarks, as well as former US pre President Donald Trump. According to the ADL tracker of anti-Semitic incidents, in 2022 alone there were 1,554 cases of anti-Semitic uh, attacks or incidents in the United States. 
In 2021, the UK saw the highest number of anti-Semitic uh, incidents recorded, uh, coinciding with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In Manchester and London during 2021, Jewish people reported 155 anti-Semitic incidents, including abusive language or imagery. Um, so just like that, unfortunately, uh, there are are a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of bad happening in the world uh, today as well, and it's our job to to continue to um, strive for a for a better world uh, for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our communities, and for our future generations. Um, you know, we can we can just pray and we pray that may Allah the Almighty um, enable us all to to live in harmony. To, to follow the teachings of, of our religions to, um, to create a, a humble uh, abode for, for, for everyone um, here in, in, in this world. Um, that concludes us um, with today's breakfast show. Thank you very much um, for listening and tuning in. And I would like to thank our, our uh, guests for taking time out to discuss the topics. And I'd like to thank our producer, Maliha Mahmood, researchers Isha, Ariba, Saira, Ayman, and our technician, Akib, who has been a lot of help today. And do tune in with tomorrow's breakfast show for, the, for tomorrow's show. Thank you.